and welcome to the Silver Screen Podcast. I'm Jared Boomer. And I'm Katie Ganey. This is a podcast about movies and pop culture. Katie, how are you today? Ooh, I'm doing so well. Thank you. How are you? Not bad. Not bad. I have actually, um, have you watched the movies at all on CNN? It's a new little documentary series that they have. No, that is I, on CNN. No, do tell because I'm interested. It's very good. I've been I watched the um, '80s one last night, and I'm probably going to watch the <gasps> '90s or the 2000s after we're I'm done recording. Idiot. I'm an idiot. Okay. I know exactly <laughs> what you're talking about. You're talking about the thing where they go through like the different decades, and it says uh, this is what was popular then, and here's the movies and what the culture was like, and all that. No, this is just a specific show just about the movies of those <gasps> oh, decades. So I've been watching now I'm gonna have to find okay. it since we're talking about it. But yes. I've been watching the one that Tom Hanks executive produced that's on Netflix and I'm obsessed with it's the de- it does different decades. The decades, yeah. So is that what this, it's called? The decades? I think so. Or it's just the different decades, each one. So Um Well, but I've this... been watching all I think I've gone through I went through seventies. I'm okay. going through seventies this week, so I'm almost done. I've already done the nineties, the eighties, and the two thousands. Nice. So this is basically like the same thing, except it's just about the movies from those decades. How cool. I'm going to have to watch it. And that's on Netflix? um, Not yet. It's on... If you have CNN, you can go on their website. Like if you can go on their website and watch it through there. Like if you have it through a cable system or something. But it'll probably end up on Netflix once it's done. It still has a few episodes left. But they did um, 70s, 80s, 90s, 2000s, I think 60s and then like the golden age of Hollywood, which is like 40s and 50s. So that is too cool. So they have a few episodes left, but I really like it so far. And if you like movies, I would definitely suggest checking it out because it's just like it'll be like the 80s one was just like um, they just talk about each kind of big movie in the 80s for maybe like five minutes. Then they have either a person that was in the movie or a person, the person that directed it. Like they have Spielberg talking about E.T. and they have Scorsese talking about some of his movies and um, all that stuff. So they got the the heavy hitters for, for this. So that's amazing. It's really cool. So yeah, check it out. The movies is on CNN and you can watch it online on CNN's website, but I'm sure because the other ones have shown up on Netflix that once it's done, I think it has two episodes left. Um, then it'll probably be on Netflix pretty soon. So, okay. Well, and I highly, I highly recommend the decades on the decades. Ones are great too. Yeah. So check those out. There's our, there's our recommend for today. So (laughs) that's what I've been watching. But before we get into, uh, once upon a time in Hollywood, which this is episode number 15. So thanks for listening to the silver screen podcast. We'll get into that in just a second. But first we have two quick things. One of those is we have a correction from last week's Lion King episode, which we're not great. So, uh, we usually have a correction or two every week. (laughs) I mean, I think it's fine. I think that's just human error and we're being genuine on our podcast. And then we're admitting that we were wrong. So that's that's also good. That's humility. That's great. (laughs) Um, What I noticed, I was listening to the Lion King episode and I realized I said Billy Eichner and Meghan Markle went to NYU when I know that's not correct. But I had just been talking about Donald Glover because he attended NYU when he got his job at 30 Rock as a writer. So they attended Northwestern University. Um, oh, okay. In Illinois, yes. So they they did not know each other, but they had the same teachers. And they were there at the same time. So anyway, that's my correction. I apologize. I don't think they're listening to this podcast, but if you are, hey, I love you. There you go. So we have <laughs> we have one piece of news to cover before we get into Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, which is going to be most of our episode because it's a it's going to go pretty in depth. But one thing that did happen this week is um, a highly anticipated movie. 
that's coming out later this year that is probably going to get a lot of Oscar nominations is The Irishman, directed by Martin Scorsese, starring in this movie um, a bunch of different people. Robert De Niro, Al Pacino, Joe Pesci, Bobby Cannavale, Harvey Keitel. They're all in this. Even uh, Ray Romano is in it, too. Sebastian Maniscalco is in it. So lots of people are in this movie. But the first trailer dropped for it earlier this week. And it's definitely, um, you know, a mob movie set kind of like where a lot of Scorsese movies are set in a certain time period that's about a certain, you know, mobster or or things like that. So this is, I think, going to be pretty interesting. We got the first trailer and it should be coming out later this year. Um, But the plot of it, I'll just read it to you real quick. The Irishman is the story of Frank Sheeran, a mob hitman and World War II vet who develops his skills during his service in Italy. Now an old man, he reflects on the events that defined his career as a hitman, particularly the the role he played in the disappearance of labor leader Jimmy Hoffa, his longtime friend, and his involvement with the Buffalino crime family. Dang, that sounds exciting. I watched the trailer and I'm pumped. This is definitely my kind of movie. And I I mean, it's not like they have to remind me, but I was amazed at the end when, because we know Scorsese's won um, Oscars and been nominated yes. for a ton, but also that Joe Pesci and Al Pacino and Robert De Niro are all Academy Award winners. So you know it's going to be, if nothing else, fantastic acting and directing. And this is Joe Pesci's first movie in quite a while. Yeah, so. and he he is getting he did look like he was getting older, not not sickly or anything. I just you can tell he's aging now. Yeah, he's seventy six, yeah. so it definitely has some 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 old guys in it. Because uh, Pacino's <laughs> Pacino's seventy nine. Yeah, and uh, De Niro is seventy five. So your grandpa is going to love this movie. If yes. you're anybody's grandpa out there, they just are going to watch this a bunch. So. Absolutely. <laughs> really I'm love into it. it. But it'll come out. So it premieres at the New York Film Festival on September 27th. Netflix has not announced their official release date for it, but it'll probably be October, November, somewhere in there, right before the Academy Awards stuff starts ramping up. So, which is smart. So that'll be out later this year, but we just got the first trailer and it looks pretty good. I'm interested to watch it. I think it's interesting that a movie this high of quality of actors and also the budget, this production budget for this is $200 million, which is a lot of money. And the fact that it's just going to be on Netflix is pretty interesting. So, cause we saw Roma last year, obviously directed by Alfonso Cuaron, which did very well at the Academy Awards, got a lot of nominations and was highly successful. And that was a really good movie that was also on Netflix. But the budget for Roma was a lot less than it's going to be for The Irishman because The Irishman just has bigger casts and bigger stars in it. So I think it'll be interesting. This is one of Netflix's first like real big budget movies because Roma did have some, you know, it had obviously a steam director attached to it. But as far as like budget wise, it wasn't. Its budget was fifteen million, and the budget for this is two hundred million. So definitely a big difference there between the <laughs> two. Yeah, no joke. I I also have heard some people are kind of upset or irritated, I guess, or surprised, but mostly I've heard irritated that Scorsese is taking this to Netflix because I think some directors are really opposed to doing that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there are definitely ones out there. I think Spielberg has said Spielberg he doesn't too. love it. Yeah, um, Christopher Nolan, I could never see doing a Netflix only movie. Neither could I see Tarantino doing that. Nope. Um, I would say I couldn't see the Coen brothers doing that, but then they did it with Ballad of Buster Scruggs. Oh, so that see, was... they, I, would, I wouldn't be surprised if they did it. Okay. I feel like they do things to the beat of their own drummer, you know? That's true, yeah. So Scorsese is interesting, though, because he's definitely, and we'll probably talk about this with Tarantino, but as far as today, there's maybe 10 legendary directors out there that when you hear their name, you know that they have a lot of work and that they've done big things. And Scorsese is definitely one of those. 
Yeah, so absolutely. he's definitely in that category with Tarantino and Spielberg and the Coens and whoever else you want to throw in there that is have been around for a while and have been making a lot of movies he, and still make movies. He seems to be a person to me that's very genuine and doesn't really put on airs. So I kind of think to him, it's not even like a humility thing. I think he just doesn't care about like whether it's on the big screen or not or whether it's streaming, you know? Yeah. And I think for this too, for this film, um, I think the thing with Netflix as well is that the audience for your movie can just be so large on Netflix because so many people have Netflix. So how many people would see The Irishman in theaters? I mean, you and I would go see it and people that like Scorsese and people that like De Niro and Pacino and, and all them would right. go see it. But as far as overall box office, it probably wouldn't make a ton, especially if it came out or when some of these other big movies are coming out. So the fact that it's on Netflix and on Thanksgiving after you've eaten all your turkey, you can say, hey, that new uh, Scorsese movie is on Netflix. Does anybody want to watch it? You know what I mean? Like something like that. And then it just becomes more accessible to, to count, view it. Count me in. That's what I'll be doing. There you go. Eat that turkey and then take a little nap and then watch The Irishman if mm-hmm. it's out by then. So that is coming out sometime later this year. Again, premieres at the New York Film Festival on September 27th. And then it will be probably like last year with Roma. It'll be in theaters for a little while because to qualify for Best Picture, you have to do that, which is why Netflix did it with Roma. Put it out in theaters for a couple of weeks in certain locations. And then it'll be on Netflix to watch. So enjoy that. So clever, all these loopholes. I know, right? I think the Oscars might be changing those rules, or I I read a rumor that they were looking at that because they're like, more and more stuff is coming out on digital now, so is it really fair that we have this qualifier that your movie has to be in either New York or LA for a certain number of weeks and screen in this many screens and things like that to be qualified? That seems kind of old-timey, you know, qualifications, procedures for that. So, got to rethink it because these movies are just coming out everywhere now. Indeed. So let's go ahead and get into Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, released on July 26th. It is two hours and 41 minutes, rated R for language, strong graphic violence, which there is definitely some strong graphic violence, which we'll talk about, uh, drug use and sexual references. Um, IMDb and Rotten Tomatoes scores, IMDb 8.5 out of 10 Rotten Tomatoes, critics 84%, audience 71%. So I was surprised by that. A little bit down on this movie from the critics, but Tarantino is not for everybody, which I think I've said before. He has a very certain uh, filmmaking style and a very certain type of movie. If you like that, you probably like it. But if you don't, you could be turned off by it, which is understandable. And then box offices of July 31st, it has made $55 million. Its budget was $90 million. So it's making that budget back. Um, obviously, Brad Pitt and Leo and Margot Robbie and think did this for less money than they would probably do a normal movie um, just because the budget was only $90 million. And I mean, Leo and Brad Pitt could easily demand probably $15, 20000000 million a movie if they wanted to. So um, I think they definitely took some pay cuts here to work with Tarantino, which is great. And this obviously has a stacked cast too, which we'll get into. But the synopsis is this, a faded television actor and his stunt double strive to achieve fame and success in the film industry during the final years of Hollywood's golden age in 1969 in Los Angeles. And Leonardo DiCaprio's character is Rick Dalton. And then uh, Brad Pitt, his character is Cliff Booth and Cliff is Rick's stunt double. So that's how that works out there. So directed by Tarantino, his ninth movie. Um, He's won two Oscars for writing for Django Unchained and Pulp Fiction, but did not win Best Directors for either of those, which is Mm kind of interesting. And then he's uh, obviously directed Pulp Fiction, both Kill Bills, Django, Inglorious Bastards, Reservoir Dogs, Jackie Brown, and The Hateful Eight. 
So those are his movies. Real quick, just right off the bat, I know we didn't prepare this, but what's your favorite Tarantino movie? Do you have a favorite? <laughs> I, knew, I knew you were going to... Well, I thought you were first going to ask me what I had seen or hadn't seen. The okay. only ones I haven't seen... I haven't seen Reservoir Dogs. Not because I didn't care. I started to watch it one night and fell asleep. Okay. Um, but I was at someone's house, so I didn't have it to to watch. So um, I haven't seen that or Jackie Brown or Kill Bill 2. Everything else I've seen. Okay. My favorite by far is this one, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. Wonderful. By far. Good choice. Yeah, um, I think second I'm... would be uh, Inglorious Bastards for me. Okay. Yeah. I really like Reservoir Dogs. I think that's really good. Okay. I don't know if the, what would be first. I also think Django is really good too. Mm-hmm. So Pulp Fiction, I don't love. I, I know did not a lot of people love Pulp love Fiction. Pulp nope, Fiction. I don't me. love it. That's a hot take, but I'm I just don't love it. So I really I like also Jan- actually I liked the Hateful Eight. Okay, but I didn't love was, that one. It was a little. It was it was violent to the point where I was like, I don't honestly think I could watch this again. Yeah, yeah. I think Django is one of his best like stories that he's mm-hmm. come up with, and then yeah. Reservoir Dogs I like because it's not like three hours long. So yeah, uh, <laughs> excuse me for cutting you off earlier. I didn't mean oh, to do that. Oh, you're fine. So that's that's a pretty good one too. That's an hour and forty minutes. So it's definitely one of the shorter Tarantino movies. But that's really interesting how it plays out and did not really do all that well at the box office which is interesting but uh only made 2.8 million dollars but well he wasn't that you are you talking about reservoir dogs yeah well i don't think he was wasn't that one of his first or his first that was definitely one of his probably wasn't he wasn't super established i don't think he was well known yeah i mean the budget for that was only 1.2 million so (laughs) by the studio success they doubled the budget on it so kind of makes sense so but it's pretty good so yeah, those are those are our Tarantino movies, but this is his ninth movie. He said he might be done after this movie. That's kind of rumors, but I don't know if he will be or not. Well, he he said that there was a good interview with Kimmel, and he did say he's planning on ten. Um, he did say he can be convinced otherwise, so he okay. might be. But um, I, I wouldn't be surprised if he like was one of those people that retired and then came out of retirement. So that's just that's my. That's my two cents. I I think he is a wonderful film director, and actually, his more recent films have changed my mind on him. Because I I saw I saw Pulp Fiction, didn't really care for it, and was like, I don't get this guy, and he's super weird. And the more I've seen of him, the more I really respect his vision and how good he is at filmmaking, and I love his style. Um, sometimes it's like the language and the violence is just a tad too much, where I'm too uncomfortable mm-hmm. in the end. Which I think I know that's what he goes for, and that's what he even says. That's what he's trying to do is make you uncomfortable. Um, so he succeeds. But either way, I like him more now than I ever did before. I also think, too, this is definitely one of his more accessible films. Absolutely. For sure. It's definitely yeah. one of the easier ones to get into and to to watch and to enjoy. So, yeah, which is good. So let's go ahead and get into the cast. Obviously, we have a big stacked cast for this movie. One of the biggest casts of the year. And first off, that would be starting with Leonardo DiCaprio. Jared, you better get that crush alert button ready. <laughs> Leonardo DiCaprio, big fan, obviously. Um, he plays Rick Dalton. He he's arguably the lead. I think it's a toss up between Brad Pitt yeah, and Leo in this film. I would say he's probably the lead in this. Probably, yeah, but I'm so in love with Brad Pitt too that it's really <laughs> hard for me to like to give that up. But he um, plays Rick Dalton in this film. He, I would like to point out, he finally won an Oscar for The Revenant a couple years ago. He's been nominated alone, like nominated for What's Eating Gilbert Grape, The Aviator, Wolf of Wall Street, and Blood Diamond as well. So He should have won for Wolf of Wall Street. Yeah, I don't know who beat him that year. but He should have won for What's Eating Gilbert Grape, in my honestly, opinion. Honestly, yeah. Um, but he's Blood also, Diamond, what a weird one to get nominated that for, was, too. <laughs> yeah, just kind of a depressing movie. Yeah. Um, he's also known for Titanic, Romeo and Juliet, Catch Me If You Can, Gangs of New York, 
The Departed, The Great Gatsby, and your favorite, Inception. And it was announced that he will star in Devil in the White City about the notorious serial killer, H.H. Holmes. I feel like notorious and serial killer is redundant, but I put those words in there together. Yes. Um, I also yeah. like how um, yeah. I was going to say how Leo really like picks and chooses his films. Like he'll do like one Absolutely. movie every three years or something. Yeah. So every time he's on screen, it's always a big event that Leo is in a movie. And I can kind of respect that out of him that he really does really like read the scripts a lot and doesn't really assign himself to a project unless he thinks it's a really high quality project. I so. agree. I looked that when I was looking at his IMDb, I noticed he's been averaging the last few years a movie a year, which is impressive. Okay. Um, and Devil in the White City. I think you're right, though. I think he's very choosy, but I think he can't afford to be because everybody wants him. Yeah. Um. So Devil in the White City, I'm pumped about. I read the book and it's fantastic um, and super creepy. And I've heard that Scorsese is the one that's directing that. And they're, they were supposed to film it like over a year ago because I've been watching this since I... That's why I read the book over a year ago was because I thought they were going to do this soon. Um, and it's been... They were debating whether it should be like a film or a Netflix series and what have you. So they've announced at least now it's going to be a TV series. But I don't know if it's going to be like something that's on you know, TNT or something like the recent thing that Chris Pine just did, or if it's going to be Netflix or what, but, and I'm yeah. not sure if Scorsese still attached to it, but I do believe he is. Okay. I'm looking yeah. at the, the devil in the white city Wikipedia and it says uh -huh. that Leo bought the film rights back in 2010 yep, and yep. wanted to do a movie. But I think uh, here it says Hulu actually has started working on it. But Leo Excellent. and Scorsese are producing it, executive producing it. So Perfect. they definitely have a hand in it. So that'll cool. be interesting to see. And I think something like that, too, might work better as a TV series just because you have more time to go into I agree. detail with it. So I agree. And it was it was quite something what he got away with H.H. Um, H. Holmes and how long it took for them to catch him. So that's going to be great. Um, also, second, just get ready. Just keep your hand on the buzzer at all times. Next up, we have Brad Pitt. <laughs> I don't even think I need to explain Brad Pitt to anyone in America, um, but he plays Cliff Booth. Booth. He arguably looks like hotter than he's ever looked in his life. <laughs> Um, so he's known, I clearly have a crush. I have a crush on both, but I just feel like lately it's been more on Brad, but then Leo talks and then he's on screen and I just can't decide. The point is Brad Pitt is a phenomenal actor with quite a resume as well. He is known for Inglorious Bastards, another Tarantino film. Thelma and Louise was his big debut. Fight Club, Meet Joe Black, A River Runs Through It, Legends of the Fall, the Ocean's Eleven franchise, and the movie Seven. And later this year, he will star in Ad Astra, which you and I are both excited for. And I would just like to say this now, Jared. I have a feeling that this could be the year that he gets an Oscar. If nothing yeah, else, I definitely think a nomination is in the future. One of the big actors that has not won an Oscar yet, which is pretty surprising when you consider yeah. his career and all the stuff he's done. If he was going to win it for anything, yeah. probably should have been either Fight Club um, or maybe Moneyball. I would say, or in Gorgeous. Yeah, he was even. great. He was great yeah. in Moneyball. I, I've loved him in so many things, and I think that it's neat that he is not only so classically handsome, but he also is really, really talented. So I'm hoping, I'm hoping if nothing else, he's nominated. But this could be his year, and I, I was really happy. I know we all held out for Leonardo DiCaprio for quite a long time for him to win. So I'm yes. thinking it might be Brad's turn. And I'm excited um, to see Ad Astra, which comes out uh, in next month. So. I'll be back on yes, screen very yes. soon again. So, and you'll you'll hear us talk about him, but we might we might have to do a crush alert again just to remind everyone. <laughs> Next up, we have quite possibly one of my favorite female actresses on the planet, Margot Robbie. 
I love Margot Robbie. She is stunning. Of course, Australian. She played Sharon Tate, who was a very famous woman known for um, being in Valley of the Dolls. That was her big thing that she was in back in the 60s. Um, she was known for starring, the, uh, Margot, excuse me, is known for starring alongside Leo in Wolf of Wall Street. That was her big American debut. She also starred in Suicide Squad and was nominated for an Oscar uh, when she played Tanya Harding in I, Tanya, which was phenomenal. And it was announced she's going to be playing Barbie in an upcoming film next year that is also going to be called Barbie. So stay tuned Very for cool. that one. Yeah. Also, Margot Robbie, only 29. So you I may think know. she's been around for longer, but she is still very young in her acting career, which is great because that means we're going to see her on screen for the next 30 Definitely. years or whatever. Definitely. So, yeah, she's and great. We had to narrow it down, I know, because this cast, it's its a Tarantino film. It's a stacked cast. So we were very choosy with who we who we talked about. Um, but I'll definitely recognize most of the actors in a moment. But the next one, I did want to bring up Mike Moe. He's a person I had not personally seen before. He plays Bruce Lee. Um, he's from Minnesota, which I thought was interesting and wanted to mention because he actually still lives in the Midwest. I think he it looked like he had moved to California or something and tried to have a career, but he's gone back to the Midwest, has his own martial arts school, which they said is one of the best in the Midwest online. It says that. And then he holds a fifth degree black belt in Taekwondo. So the fact that he's playing Bruce Lee really isn't all that, um, you know, it's not it's not a weird choice is what I'll say. And then he has starred, though, while he's been living in the Midwest, he has still gotten parts in uh, TV. He's been in Empire, several episodes of Empire, as well as Marvel's Inhumans, which I'm not familiar with. I've heard of it, but I don't know much about it. But yeah, I don't he either, did a great job. He was good. Yeah. yeah. And I, well, he and was... I know you and I. I oh, sorry. <laughs> I don't know okay. if you wanted to talk about it. Uh, now or later, but I know that there's been some flack about him playing Bruce Lee and the family has publicly said this is a disgrace and you're it's a mockery. That's the word they've been using. I did not feel that way. I actually thought he did a fantastic job. I could not tell the difference between Mike and Bruce Lee. And I thought everything that he did was was comedic, but not in a mockery kind of way. Yeah. Also, he's in one of my favorite scenes in the entire movie, which we'll talk about later on. But it's yes. the fight scene between him and Cliff, Brad. basically. Yeah. Yep. So so that was really a uh, really cool scene in this. But yeah, his family and I don't really love this. His training partner has come out and said that his, this portrayal of him is not super accurate. My thing is, though, too, he's only in the movie for not that long. You know, kind of everybody but yeah. Leo and Brad have little parts in this movie where they pop up, do like two or three scenes, and then they're kind of done. Right. So the fact even Margot Robbie's character is not in it that much, and she's the third highest billed person, obviously. So, yeah. um, So the fact that I think some of that flack is understandable but another part of it is you don't really have that much time to get into the man's background and story when he's only in the movie for eight minutes you know what i mean yeah so that could Absolutely. be another part so um but yeah i thought he the actor who played bruce lee whatever you think about the portrayal of him in the movie the actor who was playing him did a very very good job of this mike moe so I agree. So I don't know. I didn't see that he's going to be starring in anything else um, after this, but I thought he did a great job. So I'd like to see him again. And then there's only two other people we definitely wanted to mention kind of their resume. Al Pacino plays Marvin Schwartz's. That's kind of a joke in the film. Even he says it's not Schwartz. Um, Schwartz's. Right. Right. <laughs> and we definitely know Al Pacino from basically everything. But I put some of his top things that at least I've seen him in or people talk about. Scent of a Woman, Serpico. The Godfather franchise, Dog Day Afternoon, and Scarface. And then you can see him next in The Irishman that we were talking about earlier. He is going to play the horrible gangster Jimmy Hoffa. 
Um, that comes out, we think, in the fall. So we're definitely going to watch that. And yes. that'll be one of our episodes. This podcast brought to you by The Irishman. Right. Coming to <laughs> Netflix this fall. <laughs> this is a paid... No, it's not. You're welcome. Um, and then <laughs> lastly, I wanted to mention uh, Kurt Russell. He plays Randy. No last name in the film. Um, Randy. And he is also the narrator, which I could tell throughout the film. He has a really good voice, I think, for narrating. And uh, Tarantino clearly likes him because he's been in The Hateful Eight and um, other projects. Yes. Um, he's best known for The Hateful Eight. Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 2, Tombstone, which my dad and brother are obsessed with that film, and Escape from L.A. So I definitely wanted to mention him. And then I don't want to leave anyone out. I'll mention the top, the other people that are in it, but I'm just going to say their names. So sorry to all of them, but you're not listening to this podcast anyway. <laughs> um, <laughs> so this movie is also starring Emile Hirsch, Margaret Qualley, Maya Hawk, who is the daughter of Uma Thurman and Ethan Hawk, so she definitely has an in with Tarantino, if you ask me. And she looks just like her mom. She and does. she's also currently in Stranger Things. So if you don't see Once Upon a Time in Hollywood or or if you've already watched season three of Stranger Things, it's kind of fun. You'll know that now. And it'll definitely uh, jump out at you if you didn't recognize her already. Um, Julia Butters is the adorable little actress, Trudy, who befriends Leo's character. We'll she's talk more doll. about her later, but Absolutely. she's great. I think we're going to see her again in other films. Um, Austin Butler, Rumor Willis, Rebecca Gayhart, Damian Lewis, who I love from Homeland. Uh, Dakota Fanning, Luke Perry. This was unfortunately his last film. Um, Lena Dunham, Damon Harriman. He plays Charles Manson. Super creepy. And Bruce Dern, which we all know and love, but I wasn't going to get into his resume because it's much too long because he is quite an established actor. So those mm -hmm. are the main main cast members. They were all fantastic. And there were plenty more, too. But we we're just mentioning the main the main ones that I think are are mainstream, but also like the big names. Yeah, this has a really big cast, but I feel like when Tarantino is like, hey guys, I'm making a movie about Hollywood. Would you like to be in it? They're like, um, yes, you don't even have to pay me. Just tell me what I need to do. So I feel like I that would say the same thing. Even even if I had no experience or something and he came up to me on the street, I would say, yes, yeah. I'll, I'll be in it for no money. Yeah, like these people like Damian Lewis and Luke Perry and um, you know some of these other people. I'm Bruce Dern, I'm sure they just did it for whatever the minimum, the scale is basically right. that you have to pay from the Actors Guild, but they were not really requesting anything more than that to be in yeah. this Tarantino movie. So let's be honest, none of these people need money anyway. So no, they're all set. Yeah. Um, yep. So let's talk about some of the things the critics said about this movie. We have a couple of different quotes from critics. Um, this first one is from Ruben Rosario for Miami Art Zine. He says, um, it's an ambitious and affectionate Valentine that bites off more than it can chew, but still finds a way to reward viewers' patience, which I agree with. I think you definitely have to see this all the way through, follow it all the way through for this film, and uh, know that at the end you're going to get a payoff, but while the movie is going on, it could be a little you know slow and setting up plot and things like that. So I agree with him that it is kind of ambitious, but the ending is satisfying and it kind of ties it all together. Completely agree. I think it was a very astute and thoughtful observation. Also, uh, Spencer Kornhaber of The Atlantic says, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood has been widely interpreted as an elegy for a beloved cinematic era that ended with the cultural shifts of the late 60s, which were embodied by Manson's curdled, deranged hippiedom. But it could be argued, and indeed is argued by Atkins in the film, the film industry's bloodthirst corrupted a generation that then murdered its idols. Old Hollywood and Atkins reading created the Mansons, seeding its own destruction. He also... Um, said that Tarantino chose to rewrite history in his other movies too, including Django and uh, Inglorious Bastards, which is true. So, changes the ending of it usually. So, well, I was just going to say that Atkins. When I was reading that quote, Atkins was the. It was that girl that was one. Of, she was one of the 
the people that actually was supposed to do the killing or whatever in the the film, one of Manson's family. And she had that quote in the movie where she just said, we're going to kill the people who taught us how to kill. So she was talking about the actors and other people that have been violent on film or camera. And then, yeah. And I think that even that little point right there even related to today's culture as well, because you hear absolutely parents talking about like, Oh, the kids can't play violent video games because that makes them violent or there's just too much violence and everything. And this movie that's supposed to be set in the golden age of Hollywood in the late sixties, they're still saying that like, Hey, there's all, and they even show that. I mean, Tarantino shows that throughout the movie too. Every TV show they watch, like Leo's in an episode of FBI that's very violent. Um, he's in this other show where he's playing the heavy, which is like the, the villain character that gets killed at the end. And that's pretty violent. So they're kind of setting this up throughout the movie that violence was big, even in the sixties on in media, not just today. So, and then um, one other quote from, this is not really a quote, but um, more of a, just a, a synopsis, I guess, or observation from Stephen Zetchik for the Washington Post. And he said that the movie was very successful on its opening weekend, and it's an original movie and not a franchise. And it grossed $41 million in its opening weekend, which is the highest opening weekend ever for a Tarantino movie. So he's obviously happy for from that. And it's the highest total for an original summer movie in two years. So since two years ago, we have not had an original, not a sequel, not a franchise, not tied to anything else. Just a original movie has not grossed as much money in over two years on opening weekend. So pretty insane there. And I think yeah. this definitely shows, too, with the amount of money it's made. It's up to $58 million right now that um, people will support original movies if they're good and if they have stars in them and if people think that they're interesting films. And this has not even... This hasn't opened um, internationally yet, which I'm sure it will at some point. So there's no international gross in that total yet. It's just the United States. But I feel like once it opens internationally, it could easily eclipse the $100 million mark and be one of Tarantino's you know, most, most successful movies. Oh, I'm glad you caught that because I actually didn't realize that I was looking earlier for international numbers. I couldn't, couldn't find any, <laughs> but that makes sense now. <laughs> yeah, Box Office Mojo just says domestic. So I'm assuming it hasn't opened in... Uh, other countries yet so right. but 58 million domestic just in the united states is is solid for a movie that is definitely one it's not a kid's movie so no kids can you can't like you take can't take your family to this um it's kind of uh interesting subject matter it does have stars in it which always helps and i think movie stars are still a thing here in 2019 even if we have all these sources to watch stuff i mean if leo and brad pitt and margot robbie are acting together you're probably gonna go see it if you like movies so i thought that that's really interesting that it's made that much money and i think it also came out at a good time because we have all these sequels and remakes and everything coming out right now so people are probably like i would love an original movie let's go you know this looks interesting let's go see this and that's what people did agreed so obviously with this film, um, why did I almost say Spielberg, not Spielberg, Tarantino um, <laughs> changes some things and kind of bends the truth a little bit, which he does in his other movies as well. Yes. So there's some things in this that really happened and there's some things that didn't. And you had a few of those that you found um, online, some things that happened and some that were kind of made up for the movie. Absolutely. I am I just feel like I'm super passionate about this film. I I have learned a lot about the the Manson murders and all that. And then I also just love old Hollywood and the nostalgia of it. And so I, I was deep in this movie and went deep into researching it too, but also knew some of it from watching so much about it and reading about it. Um, so there was a great online article at ScreenRant.com. Um, Kaylina Pierce Bowen is the one that wrote these things. 
so I wrote down things that were true, kind of half truths and then false. Um, one thing that's true, Margot Robbie, uh, as Sharon Tate, goes to El Coyote the night of the murders, which is a famous Mexican restaurant in California. She actually sat in the real booth that Sharon Tate did that night. So I thought that was interesting. That's interesting. Yeah. And then they, yeah, they do a bunch of shots, too, of, of old Hollywood, which Tarantino had to obviously change the storefronts and things. But there was a vintage Taco Bell, and I, I gasped because I, I love Taco Bell, and I was so excited to see it. That is an actual Taco Bell that I think they're about to turn down if they haven't demol- – tear down if they haven't demolished it already. Um, but Tarantino did get that shot before they did. Um, so that's actually accurate as well. Um, some other things that are that are semi-true. So the character Flower Child, that's who Maya Hawk, Uma Thurman's daughter, plays. She was based on Linda Kasabian. So she, in the film, runs away when they're committing the crime. She's like, I can't do it. And she just leaves. She, just she takes, takes the car and, and just like, yeah, yeah. bolts. <laughs> So um, in real life, she actually stayed, but she kept watch that night. So she didn't go in and commit any of the murders, but she was convicted. Um, so she stayed while the murders were committed, and she became a key prosecution prosecution witness in the trial. Another semi-truth, there was a guy, Steve Clem Grogan. He was in the film, um, and in the film, he actually attacks Cliff Booth, which is Brad Pitt's character. He stabs his tire with a knife. Um, in real life, that was an actual Manson family member, um, but he assisted in killing a Hollywood stuntman who lived on the Spawn Ranch, which is where all of the Manson family lived, was this big old ranch, which in the char- in the movie, Bruce Dern plays Spawn, the George Spawn that actually like owned yeah. the ranch or whatever. So there was actually a murder or multiple ones committed at that ranch, and the Clem guy was the one that did it. So false things. I just wanted to point these out because um, I, I think these are the main things people would ask anyway. Rick Dalton and Cliff Booth are not real people. So that's not someone in the past that you could Google them and look them up. However, they were probably based um, kind of on a, a group of people. Um, and that was something that Tarantino, I've heard him talk about in a great interview with Jimmy Kimmel. But they're not, they are not real people. Also, there is a scene at the kind of at the beginning of the film where you just see how gorgeous uh, Margot Robbie is in yellow. Um, I just kept being like, how how is a human this beautiful? I could not stop staring. I probably drooled on myself. I don't know. Um, But Sharon and Roman actually uh, Sharon and Roman Polanski, that is, who is a horrible human being. I just want to add that because we should just get that in there. Because he's a pedophile and he has escaped the United States. But anyway, I hate Roman Polanski. Um, Sharon and Roman Polanski actually never went to the Playboy Mansion. It was actually built, Hugh Hefner's mansion or whatever, that was built in 71. So it was two years after the murders were committed. So that, I think, was more just an effect of like their fancy life and that they go to these lavish parties and had all these cool friends that were celebrities. Okay. Um, and it also introduced us that scene in the film to Damian Lewis's character, Steve McQueen. And I thought this is just a fun fact. Um, well, first fun fact, Steve McQueen and I were born in the same hospital in Indiana, which I think is awesome. Very interesting. Um, and then he actually was in real life, a very famous actor, um, starred, I think, the real famous one is Bullet and then Escape from Alcatraz. He was a friend of Sharon Tate and Roman Polanski, and he would go to their home often. But he was actually invited over the night of the murders. He was supposed to be at the house, but he actually had a date. And so he declined the invitation. So he would have been killed as well. More than That likely. could have turned out very bad for him. Yes. Yeah. So he narrowly escaped death. Um Anyway, so that was just a fun fact for you. And then I have just a couple others here. So this is crazy to me. The film, um, the property was on Cielo Drive. That's like the famous street that everybody talks about where this house was, um, was previously rented by Terry Melcher, which they mentioned in the film. 
Terry Melcher was actually a uh, record producer at the time, and Charles Manson tried to get into music before he <laughs> became insane. He probably was already insane, but before he started this wacko hippie family. Um, so he failed at having a singing career and blamed Terry Melcher for that. So although Terry didn't live in that house, and I'm pretty sure Manson knew he didn't rent that house anymore, he decided that that was the house where they were going to start. still went there, and yeah. The, yeah, and the crazy connection is Candace Bergen, who's like Murphy Brown, and she's a miscongeniality, and everybody, I feel like a lot of people know Candace Bergen. She was dating Terry Melcher and lived at that house at the time. So Candace Bergen, unfortunately, has this horrible connection to this home where all these murders were committed. Yeah. Wow, that's So crazy. they lived, that was before the house was sold to Polanski. And then the last thing is just to tell you. Um, so Bruce Lee was also a friend of the family. But for a brief time after the murder, Polanski actually accused him of the murders because Bruce Lee, there was a pair of glasses found at the house that were his. And he had just, it turns out he had just left them there at a party or another time he was visiting. And he'd been looking for them for quite a while. But Polanski was convinced that he had something to do with the murders. Um, so I thought that was interesting how... Uh, Tarantino was so good at pulling in these little tidbits and I had to look these things up and found them fascinating but it's it makes more sense why he was like let's put Steve McQueen in here and let's put Bruce Lee in mm-hmm. here and they're all connected and then he clearly did his research for oh sure. for sure yeah so, yeah <laughs> and then the last I just like to explain this so people know um, the entire reason that Manson actually committed these things and I do say he committed them because he fully had a hand in this and I'm positive he killed people even if it wasn't this particular occurrence um, he so besides the fact that he was insane, he decided that he was going to start a race war. Um, so he took the phrase, and specifically, it was whites versus blacks. Um, he took the phrase "helter skelter" from a Beatles song, and then he essentially decided he was going to kill wealthy pick people who he called pigs, and then blame it on members of the Black Panthers group. So that was how he was going to just create problems in the society. And the murders occurred in the early morning hours of August 9th of 1969. So it's almost been exactly 50 years and just just a week or so from now, probably the day we released this um, since these actually occurred. So just wanted to point that out because I think a lot of people wonder, you know, what what even started this whole thing? Why did it happen? Because it seems so random. And ultimately, it, it was random people, but it was um, very purposeful what he was trying to do. Yeah, which is which is interesting. So yes, yeah, they don't really go. I think it's interesting too in this movie that they don't really go into Charles Manson's character that much. Just no, that they assume that you know about him and what he did, and that's going to be kind of your basis for the movie. So he's only on screen for a very little amount of time, and they don't really spend a lot of time on him in the movie, even though the movie kind of revolves around him in a way. So. Right. That's kind of interesting. So let's talk about some of our likes and dislikes for this movie. The likes are definitely going to outweigh the dislikes. For sure. Because we both liked it. Um, so one of your likes uh, is that the location and the atmosphere of the film was really great. And I would have to agree that it was just set in a great time period. And the everything from the costumes to the cars to the neon and all that showing up really made you feel like you were in that era in Hollywood. I agree. I feel like that is what Tarantino excels in, is making you feel like you were actually in that time period, in that place, in those costumes. He's so good at that. And then some other things in this movie, too, is obviously the acting was great. Everybody that's in this movie did a great job of acting, and uh, the soundtrack is really good as well. I really enjoyed the soundtrack for this movie, especially when like Brad Pitt is just driving around. The songs that are playing are great. 
So I oh love that. Oh my gosh. I, every day, not every day, but at least today and the other day when I saw the film. So yeah, the last three days or so, I've been listening to the music while I've been driving around. Um, and although it doesn't look like the 1960s outside, I just love, he picked such a good, um, diverse group too. Like there was Neil Diamond, the Mamas and the Papas, uh, CCR, all these just phenomenal people. And then definitely some that I hadn't heard of probably because I didn't grow up in the 60s. But he, you can tell he's just so intentional and he you can tell he does his research for absolutely every detail. Definitely. And did you notice too that in this movie when like Brad Pitt would be driving around alone, the music would be like blaring. But when Brad Pitt and Leo were in the car together, there was really no music at all. Did you notice that at all? I thought that was I interesting. I actually didn't, but really okay. good good job noticing because that. Wow. When Leo and Brad are driving around, it's more just like old timey radio broadcasts. But when Brad is by himself, he's really like jamming out. And I think that just shows a little bit too of Brad's character. Like Brad is very devoted to Leo. Um, Leo's yeah. character and it's, and there's multiple times in this movie where he could say that he was an actor but every time somebody asks him he always says he's a stunt double and that he's Rick Dalton's stunt double he never takes an opportunity to like you know say that he's actually an actor in Hollywood or anything like that so I think that just showed like a devotion to his character and to you know Rick Dalton Leo's character basically as his mainly glorified assistant so yeah and i i love their relationship was one of my favorite things about the film i felt like they were they were true buddies but they weren't um i guess it reminded me kind of like of classic gentlemen of that age too like they were just as confused about the world changing i think that leo's character rick was having a harder time with it than cliff was but they were so devoted to their maintaining their friendship and taking care of each other. And, you know, even towards the end when Leo's character says, you know, I have to get rid of you. I just got married and I kind of got to mm-hmm. yeah. do my own thing. They even decided like we have to have a night last night, you know, to, to bro out together, if you will, <laughs> um, which that that one went out with a bang. So but we'll get to that part. Yeah. Have you ever uh, drank margaritas right out of the mixer? Like Leo DiNardo no, I mean, it, this movie? it gave me some good ideas for a lonely Friday night, I guess. But um <laughs> Yeah, I I can't say that I have done that. That kind of leads us into our next point about the comedy in this movie, which is really great. But that <laughs> yes. was one of my favorite parts. He just walks outside. He's got the the uh, blender full of margarita. And he's just like, what are you guys doing? Absolutely. And I love... So another thing, um, you know, you said you were going to circle back to the little girl, Trudy. I'm glad yes. you want to because I thought she was a doll. She was so adorable and just really handled her own. But I loved her conversations with with Rick's, that character, because it, it kind of brought out the humanity in him, but also how dramatic and ridiculous he is. But I thought those moments were perfect as well. Also was, uh, did you relate to Brad Pitt eating... Craft macaroni and cheese right out of the pan. Jared, I've definitely done that before. I can relate to that one 100%. I've tried to grow up a tiny bit because I am not a bachelor living in a trailer with yes. my dog. <laughs> However, not that there's any shame in that. Um, I'm just saying I've tried to grow out of that a little bit, but mac and cheese is still one of my favorite food groups in the world. That's what I call it, a food group. Um, and I, I totally get that that part. And the way he lived, I wouldn't want to live that way, but if Brad Pitt was there, I probably would. Yeah. And I think it too, it just kind of plays up his character again. Again, it really develops his character that like he's a simple guy, doesn't eat a whole lot, has a dog, eats, you know, pretty basic dinners, lives in a trailer, does nothing like super glamorous. His his car that he drives is really crappy. Leo's car is really nice, obviously. So um, all those things, I think, kind of let you get an understanding of his character more that he's like, he's just a guy that if they need him to do something on a movie as a stunt, 
great. He'll do it. If not, he's cool just hanging out and kind of just sitting there observing what's going on. <laughs> Very easily entertained was was Brad Pitt's character, I would say. Yeah, he had such a nice demeanor. I just felt like he was very, he would have been a good hippie, kind of, because I feel like he's just very chill. Everything, he was very unaffected by things. Yes, he was. So I really liked that. Um, we kind of talked about the costumes, too. Um, mm-hmm. And the costumes are great in this movie, especially right at the so beginning. So good. You get like Gleal and Brad in some great costumes. So that's great. Um, and then, too, that this is a spoiler, obviously, if you haven't seen the movie, but the ending of this movie and the fact that he rewrites history and changes it so that Sharon Tate does not get murdered. Everybody in that house doesn't get murdered. But instead, um, you know, Brad and Leo kind of beat the the people that are trying to kill them up and they go to the, the wrong house. Basically, they say, oh, we'll just go to this one because it's right here and the other and the the. Uh, the other house, Sharon Tate's house, is like further up the street. So they're like, we won't go there. So the fact that that happens and they kind of changed the ending of this, I thought was was interesting. Oh, my gosh. You're so right. I, I, I was just thinking that I love how Tarantino does this kind of thing. Because I do think, unfortunately, the first time watching it might, might be the best time. Because I was so tense for the whole, like two and a half hours. Only like the last 15, 20 minutes did I calm down. Because I kept thinking, oh, they're going to die. And then... She, she looked so cute because she was so far along in her pregnancy. And I was like, oh, please don't, please don't. And then in the end, um, my wish came true. But I, I think it was so good the first time watching it. But I do think that every time I watch it hereafter, I'm going to enjoy it because of the music and the costumes and catching different little inside jokes that I didn't catch before. I'd agree. So and then another thing I really liked was the cinematography in this movie. I don't know how he did it, but if you watch, there are a number of scenes that the camera starts really close on either Brad or Leo or somebody. Then as the scene goes on, it zooms out and then it eventually goes high up into the sky um, and like basically gives you a sweeping shot of something. They do that during the fight scene with um, Brad and Bruce Lee. They did a couple other times in the movie where it's really noticeable, but I'm like, I don't know if that was just like a a crane camera that he was using or a drone even that he had that was doing that stuff. I don't know how he shot that, but um, I thought that was very interesting. And they did that a couple times in this movie, probably a real camera since it's Tarantino and he's all yep. about filming on film and all that. So, um, he, but I thought that was very cool. Those shots. Well, um, I actually read a great article. I would have to look it up again, but I know that Robert Richardson was the cinematographer on this movie. And I do think he's worked with Tarantino before, but I know that they discussed that, how they, the different tactics they use so they could make it look grainy and like they went mm-hmm. back in time to show like Rick Dalton's older shows like FBI and stuff like that. And I do know they did it on, it says Kodiak 35 millimeter film. So it's okay. Tarantino's like committed to doing stuff like that. And so it sounds like Robert Richardson, he had a lot of trust in him and I don't know what yeah. his tricks are, but he definitely has them. The thing too, that if that is tougher when you use film is that you have a limited amount of times to do the take because film is just so expensive, especially now that digital. Yeah. You can just do it and then do it again and do it again. You can do as many times as you want because digital storage is very cheap, but to actually shoot it on film. And once you shoot it once, you can't like re you know, film over that film anymore. It's just like, if you have a, a camera um, that you would use, you, once you take a picture, that's all you can use that film for. So I think that that really shows that it's just like a higher difficulty level. And I think everybody kind of, up to their game when they you know know oh we're shooting on film we don't have a lot of chances to get this right otherwise it's going to get very expensive very quick we're trying to prevent that so agreed 
So um, some other likes, I just wanted to talk about kind of my three favorite scenes in the movie. Um, so if you have any favorite scenes, feel free to, to share them here. But I had three that really stuck out to me. One of those, the first one is like we've been talking about Leo and the little girl. What's her name again? Trudy. Is that her name? Yeah, Trudy, who is played yes. by Julia Butters. But they have a scene where she is, um, Leo is like, uh, gets out of makeup and then he goes on set and they're on their lunch break. So he's just kind of chilling. But he's like, I'll be fine. I got my book. Um, and then he goes and sits down and talks to this little girl. And she's also reading. And they talk about their characters. And they talk about the book Leo is reading. And mm-hmm. then Leo realizes that the book is real. What's happening? The book is really kind of happening to him in real life, too. <laughs> and the little girl is just really kind of pulling these emotions out of him. And I thought it was such a well-acted scene between Leonardo DiCaprio Caprio and this girl Julia Butters um, and just the respect that obviously Leo had for her and the way that she was acting the scene like it's not like they played down on her at all just because she's young or any or inexperienced or anything like that like he really respects her I think in this in this particular scene so I really liked that that particular scene in this movie and then when you actually get probably 20 minutes later to the actual scene that they filmed together where she is like, Leo is kind of holding her hostage and then he like throws her on the ground. That was a very funny moment because he, he like they cut and he turns to the director and he's like, is it okay that I threw her on the ground? And she's like, yeah, I wear pads for that exact reason. It's <laughs> like such a <laughs> spunky prepared. little girl. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So that was one of my favorite scenes. I also liked the scene right after that where, Leo is in his trailer. Um, that's before. I guess that comes before. So he like tries to shoot the scene. He messes some things up. He can't get his lines right. He goes in his trailer and basically just like yells at himself for five minutes. And he's like, why did you have to have eight whiskey sours? You should have stopped at four. I don't know why you had to have eight, but you did. And then he's like, I'm going to stop drinking. And then he just immediately takes a drink of something before he goes back out. <laughs> so that was a funny little sequence there that had some some funny comedy. And then um, I guess two other parts that I really like. So I guess I have Four. One of those was Brad going to the ranch. I thought that Cliff going Love. to the ranch yes. was just a really solid 20 minute, very high um, tension sequence of the film because it's basically just him moving from the entrance to the ranch closer and closer to this house and then going in to see Bruce Dern finally. But the tension that builds during that is really great. Such a great job by Tarantino and kind of all the actors involved. And then I also liked what Brad was uh, tripping on acid at the end of the movie. I thought that was funny. We had Leo uh, on the Quaaludes and Wolf of Wall Street. I know. We have Brad on the acid in this movie. That's why I feel like um, Leo, I expect a certain caliber of acting from him. And Brad really impressed me in this because of that. Both those two scenes you just talked about, I just thought, man, he is carrying these scenes, mm-hmm. um, yep. especially at Spawn Ranch. And then I, you made me think of something. It's just a disturbing tidbit, but... The, what makes me hate Manson even more is that was true that um, the Bruce Stern character, George Spahn, uh, Charles Manson would make the women have sex with him in order to let them live on the property. So he was basically, you know, using yeah. them as sex workers yep. uh, against their will so that they could live there. Yeah. Which is not good. So, nope. uh, yeah, that whole scene was really the the place where they the setting for it was real eerie, the music and then just all yeah. the, the cast that were kind of involved in that and how Brad Pitt kind of have like a confidence in that scene but you can mm-hmm. also kind of tell he's a little freaked out even though he knows that if anything happens he can definitely like hold his own oh. because he is a stuntman and knows how to 
beat people yeah. up. So I thought that was interesting. Do you know something else that was crazy that I saw this week when I was watching that decades show on Netflix about the seventies, the girl squeaky from who was a real person that Dakota Fanning plays, that girl was crazy. And okay. she actually, before she was sent to jail to prison, she also tried to kill assassinate Eisenhower, the president. Um, so she shot okay. a gun off wow. at like a protest and it was the footage was in one of those the decades episodes. So just just letting you know that girl was she was off the charts. wild. Mm-hmm. Yeah, she was mm-hmm. crazy. So those are some of my favorite scenes. And then another thing that I already mentioned that I liked, but I really liked the old time radio shows kind of just playing as they were in restaurants or driving around and they would just be playing advertisements or, you know, something talking about what was coming up that night on TV or whatever. But I thought it was just good background noise and really set you in the air as well that you know radio was really big then and people keep watching tv was an event where if something was on everybody was watching it like they were like we was on an episode of fbi or whatever and he talks yeah. to brad pitt and he's like you want to watch my fbi episodes coming on tonight and so you see him watching it and you see like other people watching it as well in the movie i think sharon tate might be watching it and then i think somebody at the manson ranch is maybe also watching it but it cuts to all those so you can see that you know when something yeah. came on on tv back in the late 60s there's no dvr there was no watch it online later it was watch it when it was on or you just missed it right oh i have a correction because otherwise i'll have to say it next week yes i didn't mean to say eisenhower because he was president when my parents were born she tried to assassinate gerald ford the president okay yes yeah. good to know so yep. yeah, those were some. Did you have any other likes that we didn't hit? I don't think so. I okay. I could go on and on, but I think we've hit the big ones. But I just really I can't get it say enough about the acting and then the whole just the atmosphere of the entire film, which is so indicative of of Tarantino. So we're gonna move on to our dislikes now, which is gonna be pretty short. But I really only <laughs> have one, and that's uh, the scene with Pacino. I thought they could have just tightened that up a little bit. Um, that seemed like that went on kind of a while. Also, it happens at the beginning of the movie, so you kind of want him to get into the swing of things. But I get that you need some of that to set up Leo's character. Mm-hmm. Um, but I thought that could have just been like tightened just a little bit. So, I agree. And I think the only scene I would have cut, unfortunately, uh-huh. was Luke Perry's scene. I love Luke Perry, and I appreciate that it's his last role, but I just felt like that didn't really add much to the film. Um, although that's the one with the little girl, isn't it? I think that's when he throws her down. I guess I guess maybe there was something. Let's say tighten up because I feel like it was just that conversation went on a little too long for me. Yeah. Yep. I think that's a good point. So but overall, I mean, everything that's in this movie kind of needs to be in this movie to make it work. And the big complaints I've seen are that people are complaining about the kind of the pacing of it. Um, But I think. If you've seen Tarantino movies before, you know that they're kind of drawn out. That's kind of a thing that, that yeah, happens. That just didn't bother me. And then no. you told me something about people are complaining about the plot. And I just think that's ridiculous because this is a real story about real people who are murdered. You can't make it, you know, why would you add more to make it plot driven and plot heavy? This is a it's a real story. It's not like a fictionalized story. Yeah, so that was strange to me that people that are complaining really about that. But there's that. some IMDb reviews that are like, just kept waiting and waiting and waiting. Um, other people are saying that it was boring. Um, love Quentin Tarantino, but just a bunch of self-indulgence. Yeah. Um, pains me to write this, that this person said it was so boring. Did anyone edit this film? Leo was not likable. The only person tolerable was Brad Pitt. Nothing happened whatsoever. The dialogue was not clever. The movie didn't go anywhere at all. People were just driving in cars, a lot of bare feet. I 100. Oh my gosh! I didn't care anymore. 
Nope. Um, that's somebody on IMDb. So. I completely <laughs> disagree with that entire statement. So thank you, sir. Yes. So um, I think <clears throat> if what you have to understand is that um, Tarantino likes to set up these worlds and really put you in the time period of the movie. So to do that, he has to really make the characters well-developed. And to make the characters well-developed, you have to spend time with the characters. So you're going to spend a lot of time with Leo and you're going to spend a lot of time with Brad and get to know kind of what makes them tick and how they view themselves and what they think of their self-worth and all that stuff. That's kind of needed for the plot. So I don't think it's so much of, of a plot in this movie per se. It's not like it's like they go here, then they do this, then they go here, then they do this. That's not really what happens in this film. It's more of just like events that are happening. And I think um, if you enjoy that, and if you enjoy just like great actors just acting on screen and doing stuff, then then you'll like this movie. Yeah, I agree. So that's basically and- our... Or, oh, did you have anything else? Oh, I was just going to mention my last little disclaimer. Yes, go ahead. Um, I just wanted to say that uh, a lot of people, you know, are commenting about true crime, and I'm really into it, so I hear these comments a lot. Um, we know true crime and mass murder are terrible, but we tend to hear in history about the murderers more than the victims. So I think Tarantino did a really good time, good job of focusing on the victims much more than the, the murderers. Um, so I wanted to mention specifically we did not – mention all of the murderers names except for charles manson and squeaky um but and she actually wasn't one of the murderers sorry um but i did want to mention who did die and altogether it wasn't just that night it was several nights and over a period of time um the victims were abigail folger jay sebring Wojtek frykowski stephen parent sharon tate who was eight and a half months pregnant and her unborn child died too lino and rosemary labianca gary henman and donald Che. So just wanted to mention them, and and it's very sad that their life was so tragic and so short. Yes, it, it, it is. So we wanted to take time to to mention them on this episode. And then um, the only, I only had a few other things, I think. One sure. was uh, be sure you stay through the credits. There's a mid-credits scene about halfway through with Leo about cigarettes that's very funny. It's a great little just like closing scene, but it's it's very funny. Leo's doing a commercial for cigarettes. I thought that was funny. Um, and then what did you think too? just real quick? We didn't really talk about this at all, but what did you think of the violence in this movie? There's not really any and Tarantino's known for violence, but mm-hmm. there's not really any until that final 15 minutes. And then you get all of it kind of right at once. Yeah. Even the fight with Bruce Lee, I felt was so short and really kind of more comical than anything. I didn't yeah. even really consider that to be graphic violence. The no. end definitely you get about 15 minutes there where it's a it's a mess. Um, but I I actually think that's one of the reasons I liked this film better. I think my issue issue with like Django and some of those is sometimes the use of racial slurs and slurs and then also just the graphic violence and stuff like that that can be a bit much for me to the point where I'm like I'm not enjoying this anymore and I felt like this one had just the the, the right amount if you will where I was like okay I can handle this and a lot of it was so comedic I, we didn't mention the flamethrower but I just want people to see this if they haven't seen it or if they have the flamethrower was my absolute favorite part um, but things like that I think also broke up the violence to just make things comical again so I was completely fine with the level of violence in this film yeah, I think I was okay with it too. It wasn't that bad at all. Um, the, I mean, you kind of do get it at the end, but Leo with the flamethrower is very funny. When Brad Pitt smashes that woman's head into the telephone, some people in my theater were gasping, others were laughing. So it yeah. just depends on how you <laughs> interpret that moment. Sure. The dog attacking people, people thought that was kind of funny, yep. um, that the dog was just taking it. And then uh, Leo's wife, the Italian lady, how she just, forget what she does to that one girl, but she like 
hits her or something and that's yeah. pretty funny so the violence in this movie is definitely more comedic at the mm-hmm. end but and i love that part at the end with leo with the flamethrower and then Best how part. he's just in the pool practicing his lines and that girl walks out and he's like <laughs> what his, what the heck having his margarita like, yeah what is going on oh, so that was so that funny. was very interesting too so yeah that's kind of that and then the only other thing i had was obviously this movie is going to get oscar nominations what do you think it gets nominated for i think leo is going to get a nomination he might get it for ad astra but we haven't seen it yet so right now i'm gonna say he'll get one for this film i could see leo getting one as well margo i could see them actually doing it it depends because i think little women i think there's a lot of female driven uh films yes. this year so i think margo yeah yeah so i think margo might not make it um tarantino 100 i think should get a directing nod uh, cinematography, we'll I would writing say. Too. Yeah, yeah, I would say writing, cinematography, costuming, none of that would be extreme to me. I think those all yeah. would be deserving of at least a nomination. Leo's definitely a lock for Best Actor nom. He could even win it at this point because this is probably one of the best performances. This is the best performance I've probably seen this year by yeah. an actor in a movie. So we'll see what comes out later on this year. But Brad could get it for supporting, I think, like you said. Yeah. I, I'm... I guess this would probably get nominated for Best Picture, but I don't know if it has a great chance to win Best Picture. But I hope it gets nominated. But I think it could definitely slide into that nine or ten nominations. If the if the Academy chooses to nominate that many movies, I could see this definitely sliding in. Uh, right. The Academy loves movies about Hollywood and making movies. So we saw it with La La Land, how that was so popular. So this could definitely be um, another popular one that sneaks in there and gets nominated. So that could be very interesting come awards time. But yeah, definitely some some Oscar noms for this one for sure. Um, as long as people remember it, which I'm sure they will because it's a Tarantino movie. When Agreed. We get to February. So the only other thing we have left to do is give our grades. So what are you going to grade Once Upon a Time in Hollywood? Jared. I'm giving this the highest score I've given so far. Okay. In 15 episodes. I'm giving this a 96. I think there is, it was so hard for me to find something I didn't like. It's everything I like. I really enjoy true crime. I love good acting. Anyone that can take me away for almost three hours and keep me invested for three hours gets my vote. So 96 out of 100. I don't, I don't regret it. I also have the same grade as you, actually. So <gasps> no! 90, 96 out of 100. That's my highest grade I've given anything that we've reviewed. Wow! Merry so Christmas! Far. Yes. So I gave us a 93. I gave Avengers Endgame a 95. Me too. Those are two oh, yeah, of my okay, yeah. highest rated so far. I did 95 far. for Rocketman. So Rocketman okay. was my closest. And then Booksmart, I gave a 94. So that's kind of... yeah. Like we said, the only things were that scene with Pacino, that scene with Luke Perry, maybe cut those down, shorten them, whatever the case may be. Then this probably gets like 100 out of 100. But uh, both of us really enjoyed this movie. It's really great. It'll be great to rewatch it, too, like you said, and pick up on things that you didn't see the first time through. So Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, go check it out in theaters and be sure to support original movies, too. These remakes and these sequels are all great. But when we get an original idea that somebody is making and putting time into and effort and there's big stars attached, then if you go see that, then that shows the movie studios that, hey, these can be successful. We should maybe do more of them. So Absolutely. That's always good. So coming up next week on the Silver Screen Podcast, a not an original movie. <laughs> We're by taking any it means. another direction. Hard another left directions, turn. Hard everybody. left turn next week. We have The Rock, Jason Statham and Idris Elba. And Hobbs and Shaw. Bum, bum, bum. Which is going to be good. Um, I accept these movies for the fact that they don't really have great story in them. It's just a bunch of stuff blowing up and cars driving around. And <laughs> it looks cool on screen. So as long as you can entertain me with your stunts, yep. I'm totally fine with that. So that'll yep. be 
next episode of the Silver Screen Podcast, Hobbs and Shaw. You can listen to the Silver Screen Podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, um, Radio Public, Stitcher, TuneIn, Spotify. We're in all those different places. Just search the Silver Screen Podcast and then follow us on Facebook. You can just search the Silver Screen Podcast there and then at Podcast Silver on Twitter and Instagram to uh, to go there. And we're actually going to be putting a poll up because mm-hmm. after Hobbs and Shaw, not really sure what we're going to review next. So we're going to give you the chance to vote on some stuff and also submit your own choices. Um, but we're probably going to do a back to school theme movie since that's kind of kind of a big thing right now. High schools are starting starting back in elementary schools and then colleges will start here very soon. So that's kind of uh, what our idea is for the next couple of episodes for the Silver Screen Podcast. After Hobbs and Saul, we'll do that. Whatever movie you choose. So be sure to go to our social media and vote on what you would like to, to see reviewed. Absolutely. You have a, you have a vote. We so. would love your input, please. Exactly. So that's it for Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. And again, our next episode is going to be Hobbs and Shaw. Until next time, we'd like to thank the Academy. 